0: I was going to read a couple of texts, but I'm not going to do it now. But if you go look at the, just for the sake of time, if you go look at some of the Bible texts about um, Jesus' birth, you see a whole bunch of stuff happens, even from the Old Testament, that God does to like, put this in place. So from the Old Testament, God's prophesying uh, thousands of years in advance about how a king is going to be born, where this king is going to be born, how this king is going to be born, it's quite remarkable. And, and a whole nation, the Israelite nation, holds out for the birth of this king. They even know kind of the family through which this uh, king is going to be born. And it's quite exciting. It's quite amazing. And, and then you see it start to come, and, and this prophecy comes uh, through an angel that this virgin is going to give birth to a child. We all know that that's a miracle. And then where this is going to happen um, and, and this whole story carries on, but, but what surprises us, or should surprise us, is there's all these magnificent things that happen. Shepherds come, and, and they're brought by a, a moving star. Some sort of light in the sky brings them to worship. The wise men, the, the, the magicians, uh, come and, and bring uh, expensive gifts to worship Him. Herod the great sends uh, people to go find where he is so that uh, Herod, Herod says so that I might come worship him. There's, there's, we're a bit skeptical about whether he wants to worship or kill Jesus because of what he does later. But there's, there's a whole lot of things happening. Herod, um, they call for a great, uh, uh, what's that thing called, census, a great census. So everyone has to go home. So Mary has to move 150 kilometers with her betrothed Joseph so that they can uh, be in Bethlehem where he's from, which fulfills the Scriptures that this child would be from Bethlehem. So born in Nazareth, but is, is at the census in Bethlehem. God puts kind of this worldwide census to fulfill His Word. So there's some amazing miracles happening, but what should shock us is this child can't, can't be born in any kind of natural environment. He can't be born with family around him. He can't be, he's born in, a, in a, uh, probably a cave for animals alongside a kind of a, a tent type thing, kind of just a roof where people can sleep uh, overnight. Travelers can say there's no room for him there. So he's probably born inside of a cave with animals and he, and he lies in probably the trough, a feeding trough for these animals. God, God foresaw all of this in all of his power. He can move anything. He can cause a worldwide census, but he chose not to provide a bed for Jesus. Why? And my point this morning is that I think it's highly intentional on God's behalf that He's done this on purpose. And the reason I want to suggest is that um, what Jesus was doing is that He was bringing... Well, God was bringing, sending Jesus into the world, who would—he—he was one who was going to bring home the homeless, and he was going to give rest to the weary, and he was going to reconcile the orphans to the Father. I know this is going to sound so cliche, so 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 silly, but Jesus came—I'm embarrassed to even say it—but it's going to be memorable. Jesus came for sinners, not winners. (laughs) I know it's so so ridiculous, but it's easy to remember. Thanks, Anna. Jesus came for the hopeless and the helpless. And in order to do that, He has to enter the world of the hopeless and the helpless. He has to enter the world of the sinner. And physically, he even comes to the lowest of lows, to the, the dregs of humanity, to the bottom of the bottom. Because that's where He's going to do His saving. Sorry, I'm just competing a bit with the kids, if you can just help me out. In the Hunger Games, President Snow says, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. don't know if you've watched the Hunger Games. President Snow's not a good guy. But he does know something. Hope is the only thing stronger than fear. When John Piper was asked in an interview by someone, he said, what feelings... It's an interesting question to ask John Piper when you get to see him. What feelings do you have when you forgive someone? He said thoughtfully that he has to have the feeling of hope in order to forgive instead of retaliating. He has to have the feeling of hope. He has to be able to look past the incident. He has to be able to see something else beyond in order to forgive in this moment. He carried on, he says, Hope is like the reservoir of emotional strength. This hope comes from God. Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that? May the God of hope, this hope comes from God, may the God of hope, He could be the God of war, He could be the God of whatever, but He's the God of hope. May the God of hope give you hope. Now you have what is His. The God of hope causes you to hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God is this uh, this, this reservoir, this dam of hope, but He's not the only one. In other words, we need hope, but God is not the only one we go to for hope. Some of us go early in the morning to our sports teams for hope. And then we have to confess while we're hosting the meeting <laughs> that we felt hopeless at some point in the morning, right? It was wonderful. I'm so glad Steve did that. It was, what a great illustration. Why did you feel hopeless? Because my sports team was was losing, and so I had to shift from watching my team lose to worship. I had to look at Christ. So let me tell you about how I uh, shift, uh, how I put hope in other things. Quickly, my own confessions, following in Steve's uh, footsteps. There were a group when we lived in Los Angeles. There were a group of men who used to play golf once a week. I forget, on Thursdays, I think, uh, early in the morning. And I would go join them because one of them was my hope to be father-in-law um, and did become my father-in-law. And the other one was NASA's granddad when he was in town. They would go play. So it was a time to hang out with, family, w- with the family members and then a bunch of other guys from the church. So we'd go play nine holes early in the morning on Thursdays. And... Um, I didn't. I wasn't the best player, but I, I was. I, I was raised to be very competitive, not by my parents, but by my own personality. I wanted to just win. Um, so you don't have to be the best to win. I, I don't know. if you, you know the difference. Some people have skill. Other people just want to win. Uh, I, I didn't What I lacked in skill, I didn't lack in wanting to win and, and putting in whatever. So the focus on winning. And I remember. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about it in a moment. So if you think about this, the way I grew up, my hope was in win. Winning. Whenever we won, I felt good. I can still remember my first major regret as a small child. The first time my heart broke and sunk into uh, disappointment was missing a penalty shootout. A uh, penalty shootout, missing my penalty, hitting the crossbar. And my heart just sinking all the way down. Now, it's okay to be disappointed by something, but it's not okay to be 41 years old and still remember when you were six years old and, and still have like bad feelings about it, right? <laughs> Why? Wow, because my hope was in winning. So let, let me write that scripture again. May the God of winning fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in winning, so that you may overflow with wins by the power of yourself. <laughs> you laugh, but this is very much how I lived as a young man. The, the only time this, this changed was I remember we were playing a soccer game. We started a soccer game as a church to invite non-Christians to come and play. Um, and it became quite a competitive game. We had the U.S. Um, girls goalie in standing uh, come to the games for practice because it was becoming so competitive on Sundays. So it was quite good. I remember my friend was on the other team and I was on this team and, and we were both going for the ball and we both thought that the other one had fouled. He was far more godly than I was, but I was a pastor in the church. And we came, he, was a, he, was a, he wasn't a very big man, we came as close as we could in terms of face-to-face. We were closer to chest-to-chest, like this, and my hands started clenching to punch him in the face. And I, and I was thinking, there were two parts of me. One was, I just want to hit him. He deserves it. And the other part of me went, this is supposed to be all about bringing people to Jesus. I can't live this way. And so the God of winning died that day. I apologized to Matt and apologized to God. And from that day on competition kind of got rooted out of me. You can't serve the God of winning and glorify Jesus at the same time. But um, then I got married, and we were playing golf with these men, and uh, the, Chris's dad was fairly good. He's, he's, a, he's an annoying golfer because he's not like the most skillful, but he's just, he can always recover. I, I, those of you who don't know sports, I'm just going to move on because it, this must be such a boring story for you. The point is, he, it doesn't really matter what he does, he always ends up getting a good score. Then NASA's granddad was like 70 years old, and like he, he hit, doesn't hit, I mean most women would hit further than him, but he just hits straight, and he just, like, he just makes a beeline for the hole. And it's very frustrating, because there I was, uh, younger, and could hit further than anyone, And I couldn't, this day I was struggling to win. I was struggling to push myself to win. I was trying my hardest, and the harder I tried, the less it seemed that I was able to kind of just push myself into the front and to beat these men and and other men. Others didn't mean it was better to beat Chris and Bumper than to beat all the others. And I was struggling. I remember on the seventh hole, uh, you you come on the seventh hole, and your back turns to the freeway, and you face Diamond Bar, where we lived, and... And I was aware of this for some reason, aware of, as I was walking down this hole, aware of the fact that I was walking towards my home, which is a couple of Ks down the road. And it dawned on me for the first time, probably because of how disappointed I was in the golf, my mind was just racing to find something else to think about. And as I was walking there, I realized, at the end of this, I go home to my wife. It was the first time I had played golf and was going home to a wife. And it was like someone let go of champagne inside of me and just bubbles of joy just burst up, and I got a silly smile on my face, and the golf didn't matter. I couldn't couldn't be bothered. I didn't care if I hit well or badly. If I got a hole in one, who cares? If I got a triple bogey, who cares? doesn't matter. Either way, I go home to my wife. What are you doing after golf? Well, I know what I'm doing. I'm going home. I've got a wife. (laughs) My wife became my God. May the God of marriage... Fill you with all joy and peace, as you trust in your wife, so that you may overflow with marriage by the power of your romance. I was walking around the golf course, so married you could swim in it. Do you know there's, there's different kinds of people? There's a spectrum of marriage. All people, all married people are married, but there's a spectrum. There's some married people who are barely married. It's like they, it's like they're friends who live together. They kind of have their own life. They do their own thing. But they always come back to each other. It's not ba- I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's like two adults, they have their life, but they're married. They're always, this is where they come back to. And then there's others who are like, they, they forget that they're their own people. And the only thing they're aware of is the oneness that they have. And sometimes they even start to dress the same. Um, it's hard in your mind to separate them at all. Uh, and we were, we were kind of, we were very much more on this side. Um, I think, thank God, I'm very tall and she's very short. Otherwise, I'm not sure how we, we probably would have dressed the same and all of those things. Um, but we, the, my God, of, the, it wasn't a God of hope, it was a God of marriage. And I was as good as my marriage was. So there's loads of things that you can put your hope in. Yeah. But you want to be super careful because the, the writer of Proverbs says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. So if you put your hope into something that can't, like wins, then like Steve felt as well today, your hope's going to get deferred, you're going to get disappointed, and, and the, life, the tree of life you're supposed to be enjoying is going to shrivel up and die. If you make hope you, your marriage, or hope if you're single getting married, then if your marriage struggles or you can't, get, you can't find someone who will marry you, then you start to experience this disappointment, this grief, and this tree of life doesn't exist for you. You, you have great struggles. Why? Because the thing you hope for, you're not, be, you're not getting. You can't, you can't get to it. So hope deferred makes the heart sick. Being heart sick is, is terrible. So there's three questions I want to ask today. Why do you need hope? Where can you find hope? And how do you nurture hope? Just... Um, I promise you this isn't as good as a Tim Keller sermon, but in asking those three questions, it does sound like one. Why do you need hope? Where can you find hope? How do you nurture hope? Okay, so why do you need hope? Well, first, you need hope because life is full of ups and downs, and it's hope that gets you through it. I I know golf is a terrible analogy, and I don't even really like golf. Even though I play it, it's boring to me just even thinking about it. So I don't know how boring it is for you, but You know, In my example, it's like I'm playing bad, so thinking about my marriage helps my heart feel joy. So that's a small example of an up and a down. But life has far worse ups and downs than how you're going in a game. Health, relationships, job losses, serious pains and struggles. There's some serious issues that life has that we walk into. And the only thing that helps us to look past the darkness of life's ups and downs is hope. That's what, that's what keeps us going. So it's vital. The famous atheist Stephen Hawking observed, However bad life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. Where there's life, there is hope. Helen Keller said, Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. Nelson Mandela said, May your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. Christopher Reeve, the original Superman, said, once you choose hope, anything is possible. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Steve's example this this morning was a really great one. There was a finite disappointment, accept it. it, There's going to be ups and downs. It's going to suck. But don't lose infinite hope. Turn your eyes to the one who will never disappoint? Charles Spurgeon said, Hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only to be discovered in the night of adversity. What's, well, why do you think I chose those people and what they said about hope? What do you think connects them all? They face massive, radical hardship. They face, to some degree, greater difficulties than almost anyone in this room. I don't really know the difficulties you face. I don't, I don't want to really put them on a scale. But I'd suggest that, collectively, we've got serious, a serious array of struggles. Even Spurgeon had massive uh, issues that he had to deal with, mainly emotional, but also some physical What do they say? You need hope. Hope's the only thing that's going to get you through. You have to be able to cling to hope. So why do we need hope? We need hope to forgive others, like Piper said. If you struggle with forgiveness, ask yourself where your hope is. If you struggle to forgive someone that's wronged you, It's because there's something you're hoping in that you can't let go of. You can't give them forgiveness. You can't give them freedom. You need to hold on to something. But to look beyond that and to have hope in Christ, to know the forgiveness that we have in Christ, to know what we've been forgiven of in Christ, to know the freedom that we have through the forgiveness of Christ, to be able to hope and see the future that we have in Christ, slowly through the power of the Holy Spirit, unlocks our fingers, our grip on unforgiveness, and we're able to give what we can't give, which is forgiveness. To get up and try to live, life is hard. When you're down, you have to have hope to be able to get up and try to live, to make positive decisions, to get through disappointments, to deal with stress. Hope helps us live beyond adversity. If you don't have hope, you'll get stuck at adversity. But where can you find hope? Viktor Frankl, who's a famous now Holocaust survivor, wrote, a different, uh, <laughs> wrote about different kinds of people he observed in the concentration camps. Um, he wrote there were four kinds of people. Uh, firstly, there were those who turned mean. They were like Dennis the Menace's Mr. Wilson. You know, like they don't really have a reason to be mean, they're just mean. Well, that neighbor, anyone have, don't, don't raise your hand because I, I don't know who your neighbor, maybe we do know who your neighbor is, but um, I guess, yeah, Steve and Charlotte and Nathan and Ruby, don't, don't raise your hands. But have you had a neighbor who, um, you know, you throw, you're playing a sport and with the kids and the ball goes over and you just know that ball's lost forever. You can see it, you can see it through the crack of the fence, but it's gone. You're never going to get it back. No one's ever going to dare go ask Mr. or Mrs. Grouchy if they can go and get that ball. We've all had that neighbor that's terrifying to us, right? So this kind of, this mean person, um, he, he observed them, and he observed that they don't make it. In, in, the holo- in the concentration camps, they didn't last long. They died quickly. They had no hope. They were mean-spirited. Secondly, he observed, there were those who just gave up because their hope was in the life that they had. All their hopes and dreams was in the life that they were enjoying and, 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 and holding. And by that being taken away from them, they had nothing to live for and so they gave up. Is is that anyone... Don't, again, don't raise a hand or anything, but is is that you? Are you so pleased with your life? Do you have something so precious to you that if you imagine it taken away from you, losing it, it be you go like, well, what what would I live for? Your job, your marriage, your kids. What if you lost that? Why would you get up tomorrow? So... They, were, they lived for something that, they had, that was taken away, and so they gave up. They died quickly in the concentration camps. They had no hope. Then thirdly, there were those who looked, um, they looked to the past for the future. In other words, they believed that if they could get out, then they could get back everything they had lost. They could, they could get it again. So they, they hoped to recover everything that was taken. Um, you know, I can, I, can, I can have a job again. I can work again. I can have a house again. I can raise a family again. And there was some hope in that. They lasted a bit longer. But he noticed that there was a group of people who outlasted everyone, who still not only lasted, uh, held on to life, but they also held on to joy. They seemed uh, un- 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 kind of. Um, they seem to be able to stand up in these adverse circumstances. They seem to be able to look beyond these adverse circumstances. These adverse circumstances seem to be a small thing in their life, not the whole thing in their life. And this is what he's found, is that for all of them, they had a spiritual faith in, a, in, in God. Whatever, whatever they believed about God, they all believed that there was a God bigger than Hitler uh, beyond the war, higher than the war, in authority over all things, a God who had their life in his hands. They had the spiritual faith in something greater than their circumstances. They had hope beyond death. And so their hope was unshakable. The worst this camp could do to me is kill me. But it's okay because there's a being beyond here who has my life in his hands. So these people clung to life. And many of them survived, like Viktor Frankl, who now, I think his most recent book is called The Happiest Man on Earth. Peter writes this, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, and through faith are shielded. Uh, who? Sorry, through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul wrote, "We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ." Paul write, Peter writes of a living hope. Paul writes of a blessed hope. Both of them are saying we find our hope in Jesus. We have hope because Jesus has come to earth, because He's stood in our place, because He's faced the wrath of God for our sins, because He has gone into our death, because He has been raised to eternal life, because He has been given a name over all, above all names, because now He holds the keys of life and death in His hands. He invites people to come to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, to give them forgiveness, to give them redemption, to give them new life. And we come to Him through faith. And he's our hope. He stands in heaven. He prays for us. And he says, I'm preparing a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have said it. We have this lasting hope. In Jesus, we are born into a living hope and a living inheritance that can never perish. We have to have a living inheritance because Jesus isn't going to die. We can't wait for him to die so that we can get what's coming. We're going to have to share it eternally because Jesus isn't going to die, and we aren't going to die. I remember my friend; his father said to him, uh, "His father uh, went and bought him a car and helped him put a deposit on a house." And he's like, "My boy, this is your inheritance. I want to see you enjoy it while I'm still alive." It was a great. It was wonderful. thing that that person was able to do. Not not many parents are able to do that. But it was a wonderful statement. Um, for this, this kid to be able to kind of enjoy what his father is giving him in life. Well, we have the, full, the fullness of that, where the father says, I have a heavenly inheritance for you. Nothing will stop that. I will be the shield to ensure that you get here. Um, a new life, a living hope in Jesus. So, the worst that can happen to us cannot change our future in Jesus. If we walk out of here today, get in the car and pass away as we quietly sitting there, <laughs> don't to make it too horrible, um, the, worst that, that, the worst that can happen is that we go to be with Jesus, which is not bad at all. Um, Jerry Seinfeld says he, he doesn't really understand when people pass away and then other people say, you know, it was great, they passed away doing what they love. (laughs) It's like, that's terrible. I'm sure if they could come back and they knew what doing what they would love did to them, I'm sure they wouldn't be doing what they love. In fact, it would be better to be doing what you hated because then at least you could go, at least I died, I didn't have to do that. I got out of it. (laughs) For us, there's something way beyond that. It doesn't matter what we're doing because the next step after death is more glorious and wonderful than anything we're going to be doing in this life. That's guaranteed. So what if if your life isn't working? What if there's brokenness in your life? What if there's sickness in your life? What if there's uh, difficulty in your life? Where is your hope? What are you hoping for? Secondly, we find relationship. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our blessed hope. Not only is it, uh, as we discussed last week, not only is, it, is our hope life through Jesus, our hope is being with Jesus. Seeing God in glory. Seeing the Trinity, which we can't understand, enjoying one another and being engaged in that, involved in that, having the shared joy in that. So how do we nurture hope? If we find it in Jesus, how do we nurture it? Well, Google algorithms understands this far better than any of us do, but it's not super complicated. So you may type something into Google or read a news article or listen to a podcast, and then minutes later the ads come onto your computer and they customize to you right? Like you type, when does the big bash start? The next time you come onto your computer, there's an ad that goes, tickets for scorchers at Optus Stadium. You're like, whoa, I was just thinking about this. <laughs> I know there's a couple in the church who, who say that they're quite, and I think they're probably right, but they're quite, um, they've, they've had experiences where they've, they've said something like, oh, it'd be nice to go watch a movie. And then the next time they go onto their computer, there's like, uh, Half-price movie tickets in your area. It's like how, how did that happen? So there's all these algorithms which surround your life, which understand the longings of your heart, and all they're doing is bringing to you the things that you you, you seem to want and long for, and they're just putting them in front of you. Here they are. This is what you. This is what you've been looking for. Uh, James K. Smith, which is a, a really great Christian philosopher. I I, I won't pretend that I understand everything he writes, but if you are more intelligent than me, which is probably all of you, you'd enjoy reading him. Um, He writes, The formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. In other words, um, our actions form our loves, even if we're not aware of it. So we're going through these kind of secular rituals, things that we're doing constantly, continually, uh, and, and. we're getting informed by that, and then eventually our hearts are shaped by that, and so we long for that. So, this morning, how do you nurture your hope? I want to say there is something to do, but it is still based on what's been done for you. Look at how Paul speaks about our hope. He says, Hope is based on the gospel. Look at what he says. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. That, that's the gospel. The grace of God is Jesus. Think about Ephesians. God rich in mercy, abounding love. You love. Know, by grace you have been saved. Send Christ into the Ephesians 2 um, from about 5, I think, onwards. This is, so what is the grace of God that's appeared? It's Christ that's appeared. It's the hope of Christ in this world. It's what Christ has done for us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So it's the gospel. What, what does this do? Training us, the grace of God that has appeared, the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's very different to legalism. You know, if you want to be saved, you better uh, renounce, um, what is it, ungodliness and worldly passions. You better be good enough. You better do enough. Paul says, no, it's, it's the grace of God in Jesus that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. So the gospel, the, the knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit w- works in us to train us uh, in Jesus, in the freedom we have in Jesus, to to renounce and to how to live and to wait for our hope. Do you know? Regardless of what you get for Christmas this year, it's not going to satisfy you. It's it's, nothing that you can put on any list is worthy of being your hope. Not against Christmas presents. I hope you all get blessed out of your socks. I'm just saying, don't put your hope in anything. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're hoping, waiting for. Who gave Himself for us? He goes back to the gospel. Why to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself uh, for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul bases our hope off of the gospel. So you're constantly and I'm constantly experiencing these secular liturgies, training my heart to hope in all sorts of things, to hope in winning, to hope in marriage, to hope in grades if you're in high school, to hope in acceptance. You know, I'll be okay if I'm accepted by that group, to hope in financial security, to hope in owning a home, to hope in legacy that you leave, to hope in a promotion, to hope in comfort, to hope in pleasure and approval, to hope in Instagram followers. These things are not happening consciously. These are all under the hood, as Smith said. You don't know they're happening until you're disappointed because they didn't happen or you are it because they did happen, but that too is going to fade away. I was listening to a rapper singing yesterday, Zeke put me on to him, a Christian guy, and the whole song was about reaching 100,000 Instagram followers. It was, like, it was a pretty catchy song. It was like, what are dumb things to be singing about? None of them are going to be your hope. It's probably going to get you some money and on advertising and stuff, but... Hope in your standing, your social standing, hope in your health... Hope in position, hope in opportunities, hope in outcomes, hope in moments, hope in memories. Our, se- our, lit- our secular liturgies, our routines, our rhythms, our rituals shape our hearts to believe in these things. Uh, we put our hope into them. And this happens through conversations that we have. Through the things we give our attention to. Through things that happen around us repetitiously, they're just they're happening so much. Through observation, some of us some of us are better observers than we realize. You know, um, there's this thing of remember. I don't know. I don't think it's legal to do it anymore. But when I was young, growing up, they used to Coke used to at movie theaters during the trailers. Coke used to flash a Coke on the screen, but but too quick for you to know that it happened. But yet your brain observed it, and you turned to mom and said, can I get a Coke and popcorn? You're a better observer than you think, and, and so your heart's shaped art, and then you have this longing for it, and you can't really remember why or where, but now you do. I, had, I haven't had bun mi rolls in like, I don't know, my whole life. Recently, I had like two or three, but, and then I've had conversations about them. At least five times a week now, I think, oh, I'd love a bun mi. My heart's been shaped for for a new longing through conversations and observations and repetition. And then influence those around us that we see have something immediately we want it. We didn't want it before then we see they have it then we want it. I'm landing now. The gospel is our liturgy. The gospel is the thing that counteracts all of those. Counteracts the repetition. Counteracts the attention. Counteracts the influence. Counteracts the observations. Counteracts... The conversations counteracts all of this data coming at us, shaping our hearts and our longings. The gospel's the thing that helps us to look out of it and go, as Steve did today, whoa, just stop the noise, put on the worship, help me to look up. Okay, I see him again. Now, what do I actually need in life? What's going on again? The writer of Hebrews said, for the joy set before him. Christ endured the cross. So, how did Jesus get through the darkness of the cross? Real question. What does the writer of Hebrews say? The joy set before. Jesus got through the darkness of the cross, the terror, the horror, way beyond what we can understand, through the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? This is is, is going to be shocking. You, you are the joy set before him. Me, us, we, Christians, we are the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Thinking about the hope of being with you and me, he went through the cross. I just want to personalize and understand that at this point it may sound so irreverent or so so weird because it's like flipping around and making it sound like we are the gospel of Jesus, not He's the gospel for us. And I don't want to do that. But I do want to say when Jesus is struggling, He's looking at His hope and His hope is being with His people that the Father has given Him. That's you and me, whether you like it or not, whether you can handle it or not, whether it's too much for you to understand or not, you are Christ's hope. He's not so much hoping in you to do anything. He's hoping for you. He's hoped to be with you. My gosh. How do you feel when you consider that one day you will see God in His glory and Jesus Christ our Savior. What does that do? If that does something in your head, great. Does that uncork the champagne that I was talking about earlier? In adversity, I can't beat these old men. (laughs) Uh, You're going home to the wife. (laughs) Joy, who cares about golf? You guys can have it all. Who wants my clubs? When I think about this, when I think about the fact that I'm going to be with God. I'm going to see Him in glory. I'm going to see Jesus Christ, my Savior. I'm going to hear His audible voice. Probably sounds a little more like Steve's than mine, but who knows? (laughs) What does it do to you if your faith is in Christ? And I'm, I'm just going to end with this and hand it over to Josh to lead us in communion. If it does nothing to your heart then as like a doctor, which I'm not, I want to diagnose that your hope is not in Jesus. And then we can ask God to make Him our living hope. Maybe it's a moment. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you usually are, but at the moment there's just so many stresses going on in your life or you're caught up in the Christmas season or the busyness or the tensions or the pleasures. or so, Who knows? But if it does nothing to your heart, then I want to ask you, What I want to say is, how do you nurture hope? You ask God to make Jesus your living hope. You ask Him to show you, why isn't Jesus my living hope? Holy Spirit, will you come and show me? What am I hoping in? What do I need to uproot? What do I need to turn my eyes away from? But can you please help me to make Jesus my living hope? It's one thing for my head to know all of this stuff. It's another thing for my heart to be attached to it and for that wellspring of joy and peace to be unlocked. What is your hope this season?